Um, we're going to begin our series in the Minor Prophets tonight. But the older that I get, the less relevant that I become. Maybe you have the same problem. Thankfully, I have two brothers that are still in high school that have made it their life goal to make me as trendy as possible. Clearly, if you ask them, it's not working. And maybe that's your New Year's resolution for 2021. I want to be as cool. I want to be as relevant. I want to be as trendy as I can. If that's your goal, maybe we can talk for counseling after. I'm not sure. But we're going to do a, a little assessment, a quiz, to see how trendy each one of us are tonight. So I've got six phrases. I, I consulted the internet and my brothers who are in high school to check what are some phrases, some words that the cool kids are using these days. And the higher the score, the less likely you are to be a boomer. So let's see how this goes. The first phrase, big yikes. Anyone ever used that phrase before? It's apparently just a more intense version of yikes. Now, the boomer alternative is bummer which doesn't bode well for me because I use the word bummer all of the time. So I already have negative one point. We're doing great. Here's another one. Uh, how about the word bet? It's used like yes or okay. Like if somebody came up to me and said, Sam, you want to go to Culver's tonight after young adults? I'd say bet. I think yes works just fine, but apparently not. How about uh, the phrase no cap? It means I'm not lying have you used that before? Yeah, Jasper, you used that before. Okay. Um, how about the phrase flex? Like to show off. Uh, did you hear that big word that Andrew was using in a sermon? He was just flexing. You know, something like that, right? Or how about this? The word salty means to be annoyed. Ah, why was Fritz in a bad mood? Ah, he was salty because the bears lost. You know, something like that. Or my favorite, the word Yeet. I'm not really sure if it's a noun or a verb because I think it's both. It just, it can be whatever you want it to be, the perfect postmodern word of 2020, right? I've never, nor will I ever use the word yeet. How did you do? How relevant are you? Hopefully you scored better than my negative one point, so. But when we think of the word relevant, what would you say is the most relevant portion or passage or text in Scripture? Would it be the book of Acts, this picture of the gospel exploding? Would it be a book like Romans that's so theological and talks all about the gospel and what it means to be saved? Would it be a book like Judges, which talks about this downward spiral and the culture and all these crazy things happening? Well, I'm convinced that the most relevant portion of God's word for us to look at as young adults in 2021 is the minor prophets. And that's where we're going to spend the next 12 weeks. Now, my guess is that the minor prophets might be your least visited portion of the Bible. <laughs> There's probably not too many underlines in the book of Habakkuk or in the book of Zephaniah. If you created a New Year's resolution with some friends to read through the Bible this year, you probably didn't start in the book of Obadiah. Just you probably didn't. If we had a contest to see who could turn to Zephaniah the fastest, the majority of us would turn to the table of contents to see what page number it was on. Right? We just don't spend much time in this book or these books. And my guess is that, you know, when you heard, we're going through the minor prophets in 2021, you thought, has Sam lost his mind? Please don't answer that. 
But I think these books are filled with some of the most relevant passages and concepts in all of Scripture. And I want to take a second and prove it to you. Have you ever asked a question like, why do the wicked prosper? (laughs) Why do the people who are doing all the bad stuff, why are they the ones with the homes in the mountains and on the beaches? Why are they the ones that everything seems to be going well? Or have have you ever asked the Lord, what are you doing? Why are you standing on the sidelines when it seems like there's all this stuff is going on and it doesn't seem like you're doing anything? Have you ever had thoughts like that? And that's the whole book of Habakkuk. Or how about this? Social justice is a pretty trendy concept in our world today. You can't watch TV. You can't watch professional sports without seeing the phrase social justice. But did you know that God condemned the Israelites for lack of justice because they marginalized the poor and the oppressed? That's the book of Amos. Have you ever wondered what's going to happen in the future, how things are going to end? That's the book of Zechariah. Have you ever struggled with hypocrisy, saying one thing and doing the other, or saying that you worship God and then having these idols on the side? That's Zephaniah. Have you ever gotten angry at God's mercy? Like what would happen if God saved your political enemy or a terrorist? What would happen if God saved a nation of a million people who just threatened to murder your family? Would you be angry? That's the book of Jonah. I could keep going. I don't want to spoil the whole series. But these books speak directly into our culture and more importantly directly into our hearts. But before we dig into the minor prophets, tonight we're going to understand the context, the culture, the big picture of these 12 books so that we can build the right foundation as we dive into this series. The first question we might ask is, why are they called minor prophets? Does it mean that they're less important? Well, it doesn't. The minor prophets was actually, the 12 of them were combined into one book originally called the Book of the Twelve. And the reason that they're minor prophets is simply because they are short The book of Isaiah, one of the major prophets, has 66 chapters compared to Habakkuk has three. The major prophets were just a little bit more long-winded. If Andrew was a prophet, he would be a major prophet, and you can tell him that I said that. So the difference was just in length. There was also some confusion surrounding the title prophet. When we think of a prophet, we often think of someone who might be predicting Uh, the future, someone who might be like a fortune teller. But that's not really how the Old Testament used the word prophet. Certainly, they could predict the future at times, but most of the time what they were doing wasn't fortune telling, it was forth telling. They interpreted God's word, they interpreted the culture, and then in essence they preached a sermon. They were experts in the law. They were experts in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And if you have your Bible, I'd love it if you turn there with me which is one of the most important chapters in all of the Old Testament, which might be surprising, but as you turn there, you'll see the headings say blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Remember that God rescued the people out of Egypt. He made a covenant. He made a promise with them. He brought them into a new land. He gave them food and and blessing and, and safety and protection. He gave them his love and a relationship with the God of the universe, and he made a, a covenant contract with them and and promised to love them, but he had some conditions. He, needed, he asked them to obey him, to worship him. And God said that, you know, if you love me, if you worship me, if you follow my law, then there's some blessings that are going to come. But then if you don't follow me, if you worship other gods, if you disobey, then there's some curses, some discipline, some punishment that's going to come. That's Deuteronomy 28. Even before, hundreds of years before, before the time of the prophets, God predicted two possible futures for the people of Israel. Blessing or 
cursing based on their obedience. And we see some curses starting in verse 15. I'm going to read verse 25. It says this, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies, and you shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall be a horror to the kingdoms of the earth. Now flip the page and read verse 45. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you're destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. Verse 49. The Lord will bring bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you did not understand. So God warned the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 28, even before they entered into the promised land, what was going to happen in the future. So the prophets were experts in Deuteronomy 28, and they were experts at their culture. They knew God's law, and they knew their culture. And the greater the divide between the two, the fierier the sermons. They were experts at seeing the disobedience in their world and preaching exactly what God had promised in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And when the prophets arrived on the scene, things were not going great for the people of Israel. Let's just do a brief history lesson. Kind of the the climax, the apex for the nation of Israel would have been in the reigns of David and particularly his son Solomon. When Solomon took the throne... The country was wealthy, and they were peaceful, and they, their spread was throughout the whole region. I mean, things were great, and Solomon started off pretty well. I mean, he asked the Lord for wisdom. God gave him wisdom, and things were going great, but he started to go the wrong direction when he started to marry foreign wives, 600 of them, and 300 concubines, and these women had different priorities in their worship. They worshiped other gods, and God was not pleased with this decision from Solomon, But his heart began to be pulled towards these other gods. And he approached a more pluralistic version of faith. And it's not a surprise then that his kids, who were raised in that pluralism, followed the same sort of beliefs. So that when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam took the throne. He was not a wise guy. And he made a terrible leadership decision that ended up splitting the whole nation in two. So the ten northern tribes went with Jeroboam. They established a new capital in Samaria, leaving the two southern tribes led by Rehoboam in the south. And that's when the divide between the two kingdoms occurred. And the ten northern tribes, often now we call Israel, their demise happened a lot quicker than the two southern tribes, what we would call Judah. Partially because, almost exclusively because of bad leadership. When Jeroboam took the people up north, he led them into idolatry. He actually built a second golden calf, which you thought they would have learned their lesson the first time, but they clearly did not. Over the next four centuries, then the ten northern tribes continued on a downward trajectory. Over the next 200 years from 930 BC to 722 BC, the ten northern tribes had zero good kings. Now, the book of First and Second Kings analyzed how good a king was by three things. If they worshipped other gods, if they got rid of idols, and if they remained faithful to the Old, covenant, covenant, Old Testament covenant. Not one king in the northern tribes in those 200 years was what we would call good. And some were worse than others. One of the worst was a man named Ahab. Terrible man. Kings tells us that there wasn't anybody like him. There wasn't anybody evil like Ahab. He was the worst king that they had. And his wife, Jezebel, was actually even worse. She made it a pastime to kill prophets of the Lord. You might remember Ahab and and Jezebel when 
Elijah and his successor Elisha, they were uh, going at each other. And Elijah would, would tell them that you're not doing what God wants. You need to repent. You need to turn. And they would threaten Elijah and Elisha and threaten to kill them. Elijah brought down fire from heaven and defeated the prophets of Baal. I mean, crazy story in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. And his wife Jezebel, she decided to appease her husband. Her husband Ahab, he threw a temper tantrum because he wanted this vineyard that this innocent man Naboth owned. And Naboth wouldn't sell it to King Ahab. So Jezebel went out, kills Naboth, and then Ahab gets to have the vineyard. That's how evil these people were. And through bad leadership, they hastened God's discipline, his judgment on the ten northern tribes, which God promised in Deuteronomy 28. And the Assyrians, they come in and they ransack Samaria, take the people away as captive, and we have not heard from the ten northern tribes since 722 BC. They just disappeared off the face of the earth. Now, the two southern tribes actually fared a little bit better in part because they had much better leadership, though all of the kings weren't good. During that time span, they had eight good kings, and one of which was Josiah. He discovered the law, probably Deuteronomy 28. And when he read it, he was driven to tears, and he brought about this reform, this repentance among the people. It was amazing, but it was too little too late. Evil kings like Manasseh, Judah's worst king, pulled the people towards idolatry. Manasseh established child sacrifice. He brought idols and brought them into God's house, into his temple. And ultimately, the decline continued and continued, and God brought the Babylonians who took the people away as exile into Babylon for 70 years in 586 B.C. So that's the context, quick history lesson of the prophets. Some preached to the ten northern tribes like Hosea and Amos. Others preached to the two southern tribes like Zephaniah, Some of them preached to foreign nations like Nahum, and even others preached following Judah's return from exile like Malachi. And God raised up these prophets while Judah and Israel were on the decline to call about repentance, to point out God's truth, and they preached against all kinds of moral evils of the day. There was child sacrifice, there was idolatry, they set up images in God's temple, there was immorality by marrying foreigners. There was corruption of the priests and the prophets who sold out their ministries, telling the people what they wanted to hear so they could make a profit rather than telling them what they needed to hear. There was murder. There was materialism. There was so much pride that they were blind to their own blindness. They disregarded God's law. And they thought just because we have God's temple, just because we're God's people, we can do whatever we want and we're going to be okay. Even in Micah, really interesting depiction of the culture. Micah 2.11 says this, If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach of you wine and strong drink, or wine and beer, he would be a preacher for this people. I think that's the average, maybe a preacher that the average Wisconsinite would like to hear, prophesying for people more wine and beer. That's right in the book of Micah. I mean, think of this culture, idolatry and immorality, materialism, drunkenness, injustice, prosperity theology, that sounds a lot like the world that you and I are living in. There's a lot of similarities between the world that the prophets preach to and the world that you and I are living in. And let me discuss that for a moment. I mean, think on our world. Music is indicative of the heart of a culture. It's not that hard to see popular songs. All you have to do is go on Spotify or Google the Billboard Hot 100. 
And I don't think it surprises any of us at the amount of explicit songs that are popular today. But it's actually kind of a recent trend. When Billboard started tracking songs in 1958, from then to 2001, there were five number one songs that were explicit. Just five. But since 2001 to today, there has been a number one song that's been explicit every single year but one. Right now, four of the top seven songs on the Billboard Hot 100 are explicit. And a lot of them, I can't even read the title out loud without blushing. It's embarrassing. That's not quite the direction that we want our music to go. It's a picture of maybe where our culture might be at. And sure, our world might not practice child sacrifice as part of our worship services like Manasseh did, but we definitely have the practice of child sacrifice on the altar of autonomy and personal freedom when one in every five pregnancies in our country is terminated. And I'm not talking about miscarriage, I'm talking about abortion. That's 60 million documented abortions since 1970. That's two times the population of Texas, 750 times the number of people that would fit in Lambeau Field for a sold-out game. That's a lot of souls. And yeah, there's a lot of factors that would motivate someone into having an abortion, including finances or convenience or cost of health care. And as Christ followers, we should make it as easy as possible for a woman in our community to have a baby. But there is no excuse. There is no valid excuse to justify ending a human life. How long, O Lord? Along those same lines, I read an interesting article uh, last month. Maybe you read it too. It came out of Marshfield. So a woman uh, was uh, convicted uh, of a crime from August of 2019. And the account went like this. She was pregnant and gave birth unexpectedly to a baby boy in her bathroom. And she took the child and beat his head against the side of the toilet and strangled him. And she was bleeding and needed medical attention, so one of her friends drove her to the medical center and she denied being pregnant. The medical evidence was insurmountable. Uh, the doctors knew what they were looking at. So they sent some employees to her car and found the baby in the trunk. And she was convicted last month of first-degree intentional homicide and will spend the rest of her life behind bars. But what I find ironic is if she lived in one of eight states in our country that has abortion on demand, in other words, there's no term limit on abortion, she could have had a physician perform essentially the same thing just hours before she gave birth with zero consequence. Now, I'm not complaining that she was convicted of homicide. But I am complaining that a physician could do the same thing with no consequence. That, my friends, is a perversion of justice. How long, oh Lord? Along the same lines, did you know that two out of every three pregnancies with a Down syndrome diagnosis and an abortion in our country today? Two out of every three. And we don't have a single-payer health care system. There's no laws. There's no coercion 
encouraging a parent to do that. It comes down to one thing, personal choice, which for me is even more disturbing because it reveals a deeper heart issue of idolatry and selfishness, of autonomy, of a total disregard for human life. How long, O Lord? Those aren't happy things to talk about because we live in a culture that's rampant with idolatry and not with Baal and Asherah poles like the Israelites, but with sex, with self, with money, with materialism, with power, with possessions. It's no secret that you and I live in a world that does not bring honor to the Lord. I think it's easy for you and I to look out the doors or out the windows from our church buildings in judgment at the world around us. But when we think about the context of these prophets, they usually weren't talking to the world. They were talking to God's people. So my request for us is to look inside before we look outside. If Zephaniah was to come to Wausau, what would he say? If Hosea was to come to young adults next week, what might his message be? Because if we're honest, I think each one of us are tempted with idolatry. Actually, I know all of us are tempted with idolatry. I know that it's a real struggle in our life. And there's at least one idol that all of us have. And, you know, some of us might do a better job at fighting that temptation than others. But to find it, all we need to do is pull out our phone and turn on your camera and put it on selfie mode. (laughs) That's our biggest idol is ourselves. I'm convinced that even though our world might not articulate it that way, the idolatry, the idol of self is as rampant today as it is ever. Because I think most sins in our life come down to selfishness. Pornography is selfish because the person who's looking at it is turning sex into something that is selfish. It's about pleasure. It's about me. Materialism is selfish, right? It's wanting what other people's have, what, what somebody else have that we don't have, right? Or how about this? <laughs> Only selfish people complain and whine. And I'm sure none of us have done any whining and complaining in the last nine months. None at all. I've certainly done my fair share. But what happens at the heart level when we complain? We're saying, I'm not happy with what's going on in my life right now, and I want everyone else to know it. When we don't get our own way, we're tempted to complain. That reveals an idol of self. I'm convinced that as we look at the prophets, I think we need these messages just as much as the world around us. Because the discipline of the Lord is going to remain on those who do not repent. And that's going to happen in our world. That's going to happen in an earthly sense. But that should rattle our core when we think of the discipline, the wrath of God in an eternal sense. That if someone doesn't turn away from their sin and believe that Jesus died for them, then they're destined for eternity separated from God in a literal place called hell. That is the worst possible news. But that's what each one of us have earned by our own sinful choices. The only option that we have is to believe in Christ, to cling to him for our salvation. It's the only way we can be exempt from God's wrath. But none of us are exempt from God's discipline, right? Because discipline at the core is reformative. 
that God will use discipline in our life to bring us back to him, to remind us of what's truly important. Because I think our world doesn't need any more self-righteous Christians who just condemn the sin of the world while never looking at their own hearts. God's word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And my plea for each one of us as we look at the minor prophets is to commit to looking inside more than we look outside. To spend more time looking internally than we do externally. So finally tonight, I want to take a quick look at one of the prophets. And I'm not going to cheat. We're not going to look at a minor prophet because we actually don't know very much about them. We know a little bit about Hosea, but maybe a glimpse of a couple days of his life. We know a little more about Jonah, but Jonah is not what I would call a good example. We don't really know much about the situation of their lives. So we're going to look at a prophet tonight briefly, Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote a whole long book. He's a major prophet. But when we look at his life, because he was preaching to the same culture with the same message, I think there's a lot of similarities from Jeremiah's life that we'll see in the life of the minor prophets as well. Jeremiah, he was called as a prophet when he was just a teenager. And he served the people of Israel during the final 40 years leading up to their exile in 586 BC. He had an impossible task, preaching the message of truth to a a culture that was hostile and unreceptive. In the entire book of Jeremiah, there were two people that responded favorably to his message. Baruch, his, his scribe, and an Ethiopian eunuch that served the king. If in a 40 years of ministry, I only had two people respond favorably to my preaching, I promise I'd find a different job. But Jeremiah didn't. And he was faithful to the call of God on his life and continued to preach the message of truth. And I just want to look briefly at one of his sermons. Let's look at Jeremiah 26. It's just a little bit past the middle of your Bible. Let me read there. Jeremiah 26. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house, speak to the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord, the words that I command you to speak. Do not hold back a word. It may be that they'll listen and everyone turn from his evil way, that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. Let me pause there for a second. I mean, think of what's happening. God speaks to Jeremiah, gives him a message. Really, he gives him a sermon to go into God's house, to go in the temple, to preach to God's people, to his prophets. If there's any environment that's going to be receptive to a message from the Lord, it's got to be in his house, right? Verse 7. The priests, the prophets, and the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when he'd finished speaking all that the Lord commanded him to speak to all the people, the priests and the prophets and the people, they laid hold of him saying, you shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord saying, this house shall be like Shiloh, this city shall be desolate without inhabitant. And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. Verse 11. And then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and the people, this man deserves the sentence of death because he's prophesied against the city as you've heard with your own ears. Jeremiah preached exactly what God told him to, to God's people in God's house, and he receives a sentence of death. And that was just par for the course for Jeremiah's life, happening over and over and over again. He faced intense persecution. 
And that's our first principle tonight, is prepare to be persecuted. Prepare to be persecuted. The prophets didn't have an easy life. They lived boldly for the Lord in the midst of a culture that did not want to hear the message. And when you and I think on our world, I'm not trying to be dramatic, but our culture is not getting any more comfortable with Christianity. It's getting more hostile toward it. It seems like being a Christian today, as we move forward, we're going to look more like Jeremiah rather than less like Jeremiah. And that presents us with a couple of options. As Andrew talked about a couple weeks ago, we could be a chameleon Christian and we could just blend into the culture and go with the flow. Or we could swing the pendulum the other direction and we could become a monastic Christian and we could only hang out with Christians and spend time with Christians and form our own clubs in our own bubbles. The only time we see people in the world is when we go to the grocery store. Or we could engage our culture with the truth of the gospel. And if we choose door number C, which I hope that we do, then I think we should expect some persecution. And Paul reminded Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's not my favorite verse in the Bible. I think it would have felt a little better if Paul would have said, you know, Timmy, some who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Or even most. That's not what he said. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If we're going to follow Christ in our culture, there's going to be some opposition. There's going to be some persecution. We should expect that. And when you walk in Menards without a mask and they make you wear one, that is not persecution. I'm talking about persecution that comes because we're faithful followers of Christ living to advance the gospel in our culture. We need to prepare to be persecuted. If it doesn't happen today, then it's going to happen someday soon. It doesn't mean that we need to create it. It doesn't mean that we need to try to manufacture it. But it means that we should expect it. But not only was Jeremiah persecuted, he also wasn't what you and I would call a happy guy. <laughs> He's often nicknamed the weeping prophet. <laughs> what a bad nickname. And we think that's because Jeremiah was just throwing a pity party for himself. And certainly his life wasn't easy. I mean, he was basically isolated his whole life. God commanded him never to get married. He was hated by his culture. He was given multiple death threats. Nobody liked his preaching. He got thrown to the bottom of a cistern to die, sinking in the mud until somebody rescued him right before he couldn't breathe anymore. Not what I call a great life. But often when we see Jeremiah weeping in his book, it's not for himself. Let me read Jeremiah 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters, that my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. You see what he's doing? He's not weeping for himself. He's weeping for his people. Because he knows the discipline that's coming. He knows the punishment. He knows that Babylon is going to come and take his people away as exile. And his heart breaks for his world that doesn't seem to care. It doesn't seem to know that's blind to the discipline, to the wrath of the Lord that is coming down the road. And that's our second principle. We need to lament for the lost. Lament for the lost. When Jeremiah looked at his culture and his world around him, it broke his heart because he knew it was coming down the road. And our series is going to confront our culture, and our culture needs some confronting, but Jeremiah gives us a great template for how we might respond to contextualization. 
in these texts. Because our world doesn't need any more self-righteous Christians who are looking down from their towers in pious judgment at the world around us. Our world needs more Jeremiah's. When we look at the world and when we see the sin and the depravity and the brokenness, we're driven to tears. Because we know that God's discipline is imminent. We know that his wrath is coming. We know that they don't know Christ. And how are our friends and our family members and our co-workers going to know the truth of the gospel unless we share it with them? Our world needs more Jeremiah's. Maybe I can share just a bad example of this from my own life. Um, I remember early in my eighth grade year and got to go to a, a Packer game and it was early in the season, so it was still pretty mild outside. And I was able just to go to the game wearing a sweatshirt. And Sam in eighth grade, you know, I was kind of a self-righteous punk that probably wasn't saved and thought I was in good shape because of all the good stuff I was doing. Um, so I decided to wear a sweatshirt with a Bible verse on the back to a Packer game, which I don't have a problem with. I don't have a problem with Bible verses on T-shirts or sweatshirts. That's just fine. Um, but on the back, it had 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our life for our brothers. A very kind and loving and sacrificial Bible verse, right? Well, at the game, um, there were some people sitting behind us uh, who had way too many Miller lights and used way too much profanity. And it just rubbed me the wrong way. And my reaction was to lean forward in my seat and make sure there were no wrinkles on my sweatshirt so that they could read the Bible verse on the back of my sweatshirt, all the while looking down my nose at them in judgment, thinking, how could they do that? I'm so much better than them. It's probably a bit of a dumb example. But how often do we have a similar response to our world around us? Showing off our Bible verses while looking down in judgment thinking we're so much better than them. Because if Jeremiah would have been at that football game, <laughs> maybe he would have been in tears, knowing that the lady or the man behind him needed Jesus. Knowing that if it wasn't for God's grace in his life, he would have been the exact same way. But that doesn't mean that Jeremiah was affirming of his culture. He wasn't. He preached hellfire and brimstone. He almost got killed a number of times because of his preaching, because he was confronting the culture. He preached the truth. But he did it with compassion. Compassion and conviction. Christians are usually good at one, not both. You've seen the people at events holding the signs, you're going to hell. That's conviction without compassion. Or maybe we know some Christians who maybe they put their arm around a friend's shoulder comforting them while never confronting them about the sin in their life and telling them they need Christ. That's compassion without conviction. We need both. It takes humility knowing that we aren't who we would be today if it wasn't for Christ. Our world needs more Jeremiah's. So I have two requests as we go through this series. First, I want us to look in more than we look out, promising to spend more time analyzing our own hearts than we do judging our culture. Because if, if we're not going to look in the mirror when we look at Scripture, 
when we come on Monday nights, it'd be more beneficial for us just to stay home and watch The Office. Because God wants to change our hearts when we open up his word. We need to let him. The second thing, I pray that as we look at these passages, that our heart for our world can grow. That we might lament the loss, that it might drive us to our knees in tears, praying for revival and praying for Christ to transform our culture through the power of the gospel. I'm convinced that this is going to be our best series in young adults yet. Let's pray together. Father, we're, we're excited. Um, you know, maybe a little nervous as well. Because there's so much hard-hitting passages, so many relevant ideas and concepts in these books that we're going to look at. And we ask that you might prepare our hearts that we might approach each one of these messages with the spirit of willingness for you to change us and to convict us and to conform us. Grow our compassion for our world around us and our conviction. And may we grow in our love for you and for our world. So as we take some time to dialogue in our groups, may just be a really helpful discussion and conversation. In Jesus' name, amen.